You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Well, every year around this time of the year, we all experience our first good winter storm, right? Happened this week. And I don't know about your household, but ours is divided when it happens. Uh, Tara's response is always, yes, this is awesome. I love winter. I love storms. I love snow. Because of the storm, we get to go outside. We get to build snow forts. And sometimes she includes the kids and sometimes she doesn't. It doesn't really matter. She's just all about building a snow fort and, and having snow fights. And everything that goes along with snow, Tara loves. My response is, the only thing that takes place that is good during the cold is hockey. And if it wasn't for hockey, I could leave the whole thing behind. Snow is not required for hockey, and so just cold would be good, and then we'd have no snow, and it'd be nice. Um, I know there's like, it is beautiful at times, I get that, but we can look at pictures and say, oh, that's beautiful, I'm glad it's happening somewhere else, right? Snow is bad. (laughs) Through this driving in the snow can be a lot of fun at times, but maybe I shouldn't share that with you. It, it's, but it's true. I mean, you can really get the car to slide out a lot better in the snow. Um, <laughs> I don't like to shovel the snow. I don't like to be cold. I don't like to be wet. I don't like it when you go in the house and you take off your shoes and then you step on, on, on wetness because somebody else had snow in their boots. I, I, don't, I don't like snow. And so it divides our household. But whether or not you like storms during wintertime, I know that there are storms that we all do not like to face. There are times when we go through storms of life where we feel helpless, we feel insecure, we feel lost, in despair, hopeless. There are times where where we are fearful and afraid, and that is just life. That is the life we live, and we all go through those times. And none of us like them. Well, it's a a storm like that storm that ultimately the folks in our text tonight go through. And my hope and my prayer is that as we go through this storm with them, as we see how they responded, as we see how Paul responded, we learn some things. We learn what we're to think as we go through storms, and we learn how we are to react as we go through storms. And so let's pray, and then we'll get into the text tonight. Father, we love you, Lord. We thank you for the God that you are, the God that we can trust in every storm. Lord, we thank you that you've provided your word that helps us, that that encourages us, that um, there are so many people who have gone before us and gone through terrible things, and that you are faithful and you're sovereign and you're in control. And and Lord, I pray that you'd help us tonight to um, examine our lives and realize that this is something that all of us go through. This is something that's relevant for everybody here. Whether we're in it right now or not, Lord, uh, you want us to be prepared for the storms of this life, and you want us to respond in a way that pleases you. And God, I pray you'd help us. Uh, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Acts chapter 27 in just a moment. We're going to start reading in verse 8, but I think it's helpful for us to backtrack to figure out why we are on this boat and where we're headed. And so the answer to that question happens starting in verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 27 where we find that Paul is now on his way to Rome. But he's not on his, the Mediterranean princess, which is a cruise ship name that I just made up. He's on his way to Rome in a, a cargo ship that is filled with wheat, 
filled with grain from Egypt on its way to Rome, and filled with the scum of the earth. Okay, they're prisoners. Paul is surrounded by folks that, are, that committed so, crimes so terrible that they're being sent to Rome to be dealt with. And so that's the ship he's on. He's also, the ship is filled with Roman centurion and his soldiers, Roman guards that are watching out and making sure none of the prisoners escape and making sure they get to the destination as planned. So we're on this ship and we're on here with Paul and we found out last week we're on also with two of his friends that both Luke and Aristarchus decided to make themselves prisoners so that they could go with Paul to Rome. We're going to read, begin reading here at verse number 8. It says, And hardly passing it, they came into a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lacia. And so they're, they're on this ship and they're coming to the island of Crete and they get past it, just barely, and then they find on the island of Crete this place called the Fair Havens. It's close to a city called Lacia. And so the word fair havens is interesting there because it, it literally means good harbor or good haven. And that's interesting because you would assume that a place called fair havens is a fair haven. In fact, there are many churches that have called themselves Fair Havens Baptist Church because you'd assume that, that here it's speaking about a place that is a refuge, right? A haven, um, a good harbor, a place that's secure and safe. But we're going to find out as we read the text that that's actually not the case. And I wonder sometimes if the people that, that called themselves Fair Havens Baptist Church didn't read the next couple of verses and find out that this was actually not a fair haven. So we'll read in verse, verse 9. It says, Now when much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them. And he said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only to the lading and the ship, but also of our lives. So Paul says, and remember again from a few weeks ago, this is from his own wisdom, his own experience. This is not something that God granted him a special vision. This is just that he said, hey, listen, folks, we're past the time of the fast. We're past the time where it is safe to travel on the sea. We should not travel. We should stay here in fair havens. He admonishes them, and he's speaking to the captain of the ship, and he's speaking to the Roman centurion who's ultimately in charge. So that's his word of advice. It says in verse 11, Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also. If by any means they might attain unto Phoenix, and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete, and lieth toward the south, west, and northwest. And so what, what they're saying here is that fair havens is not a fair haven. It's not commodious. It's not a safe, good place to winter in. And so it would be much better for this crew if they could get back on the ship and just make it a little bit further on the island of Crete to another place. They want to winter in Phoenix. And so they make the decision that that's where they want to go. Now, Phoenix here is a place that we don't know all that much about, but we know that they believe that it would be much safer for them there. In their own wisdom, they thought Phoenix is the place that we need to be. It's the place we need to go. Now, we're going to get into where we haven't been before, now in verse 13. But I want to give you a couple warnings before that. Because I, I think, I know when I read this passage, I just kind of breezed over it a few times. Every time I breezed over it, it, it just went right past me. Okay? It, it, was, it was hard to figure out what was going on. And I think there's two reasons for that. I think 
first of all, and probably most importantly, is that we don't understand what sailing in the first century was like. We, we don't know first century seamanship, right? We, so when they say, well, they did this, and then they did this, and then this happened, and we're like, what are you talking about? None of that makes any sense to us, right? The second thing is that there is some language that is used here, and it's, it's older English, and it's hard for us to grasp onto what exactly it's saying. And so what I want to do is uh, walk through exactly what this is. I want you to picture this, okay? God gave us his perfect word. He didn't give us a perfect motion picture. And so it, it would be nice if we could just press play and say, okay, this is, what the, this is what it was all like, but we have to use our imagination. So I'm asking you, if you'd please stick with me, try and pay attention and try and visualize what's going on here in these verses. Verse 13 says, And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they'd obtained their purpose, losing thence, they sailed also by Crete. And so the south wind blows. This is a really good deal because the south wind blowing softly is the perfect wind for them to make the trip from Fair Havens to Phoenix, where they want to go. And so they see, they, they make the decision they want to go there. And then all of a sudden, the circumstances line up perfectly with the decision they want to make. I think Luke includes this detail for a reason. He wants us to know that these guys set out, and according to their temporal circumstances, everything made sense to make the trip that they were planning to make. Okay, the south wind was blowing softly. Verse 14, But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Euroclidon. (laughs) Euroclidon is an awesome name. Yeah, I called the sermon the Euroclidon Smackdown. And I did it because Euroclidon is really cool. Now, the word Euroclidon doesn't actually mean anything that interesting. It just means Northeasterner. Okay? Northeasterner Smackdown doesn't sound very exciting, but Euroclidon Smackdown does. And then you might know that Smackdown is a term that's used often by a man who called himself The Rock in wrestling. I don't like wrestling. I hate it. Um, at least the WWF F kind or E kind or whatever they call it now. Uh, but I do know that he uses the word Smackdown, and what it means is inflicting of a beatdown of epic proportions. And so what we're going to see here is this northeastern wind on this ship commits a beatdown of epic proportions. And that's what the next few verses are going to lay out for us. Verse 15. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. So the ship is on course one way, right? They're traveling west toward Phoenix. But this northeastern wind is so great and so terrible and so strong that they can no longer head toward the direction they want to. They just have to let the ship drive wherever it wants to go. They basically throw their hands in the air and say, okay, there's nothing we can do. It's going where it wants to go. We're no longer in control. Verse 16. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat. So they... Crete is this big island right around here. They're going from from Fair Havens to Phoenix, right around here. So way off, of course, there's a small little island called Clauda. They they take the chance. They go underneath Clauda because they're trying to find a way to escape from the wind, okay, to get a little reprieve. And they do that. And when they do that, they say, well, listen, we have this, this boat. Now, here it says boat, and we're thinking they're on a boat, and so that's the boat it's talking about. But the word boat here is very different from the original word boat used that they're in. So the, the boat that's spoken of in verse 16 at the end, that it w- we had much work to come by the boat, is actually a boat that is outside of the big ship, and it's a boat that's used to transport people from the big ship 
to the land when there's no way that the ship can get close to the land. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to secure that boat. They're trying to get that boat secure on the ship so it's not going to get destroyed. It's not going to fall off. That's what they're thinking about right now. Listen, this, this small ship, this small boat is going to be destroyed. And so let's get it secured. Verse 17, which when they had taken up, so they're taking up, they used helps undergirding the ship and fearing that they should fall into the quicksands, struck sail and were so driven. And again, this is like, okay, what is, what's going on here? What do they do? Well, the first thing they do is they undergird the ship. They secured this ship. They, they secured everything they could secure on the ship. And then they realize that while they're doing all this, and while they're thinking they're getting this little reprieve going underneath Clouda, that they're about to run into what they call here quicksands. Okay? And this is a big deal. When you're sailing in the Mediterranean, this is a, a real problem for many, many ships, even, even today. The quicksands are referring to are kind of like large sand dunes in the sea. And they have to be very careful because if they run into the sand dunes, these quicksands they're called here, then they're going to bottom out, they're going to hit it, they're going to uh, destroy the ship, damage the ship, or they're going to topple over, or something terrible is going to happen. They're going to get stuck. I mean, it's going to be really bad if they hit these things. And so they're in the middle of trying to get a reprieve from this wind, and then they they have to secure the ship, but as soon as they're securing the ship, they realize, oh no, we're about to run into these quicksands. And so it says they struck sail. And striking sail, it's really hard to figure out exactly what saying there. Either they set the sail up or they put the anchors down. So either they put the sail up so that they were trying to stop it because the word sail is actually referring to their gear. And so either they used their gear to try and anchor the ship where it was, or they used it to try and change where the sail was going so they'd go a different direction. But either way, they're trying to, re- to avoid these quicksands. Verse 18, And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they, li- they lighten the ship. And Luke is giving us all this detail, and we don't have to understand every point, but get the picture he's drawing for us. We do one thing, it gets just, and then we're facing another problem, and then another problem, and we don't know what to do, and then all of a sudden, what's going on here is we're just facing this exceedingly great storm. So much so that here they begin to take some of the cargo and dump the cargo off the side. It has to get really serious. Like You have to be starting to be very fearful to start unloading the cargo. But then in verse 19, it says, in the third day, we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. So they're not only unloading the cargo, they said they brought, now they're unloading all of the gear that they use to run the ship. Now this is very expensive gear. This is not something that you'd want to just get rid of. But they're doing it because they think this is the only chance they have. Verse 20, And when neither the sun nor the stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay upon us, and that's his way of saying, it's a terrible storm. No small storm lay upon us. All hope that we should be saved was then taken away. All hope was lost. 276 men on this ship, 275 of them believe that this is the day that they die. All hope that we would be saved. Remember who's writing this? It's Luke. And Luke says, all hope that we, I mean, he believes that there's no hope. He believes that he is going to die today. 
All of these men think that this is the day they step into eternity. This, this is it. Like, this was not just like a little storm, like the boat was rocking a little bit, like, oh no, this might turn out bad sometime. This was like, it's done, guys. We, there's nothing else we do. We've got rid of everything. We've tried everything we can. We are going to die for sure. 275 of 276 people respond this way in the circumstances. And, and the point is, that's how people will respond. That's how they should respond in a circumstance like this. Okay, that, that, that is to be expected. But look at how Paul responds. Verse 21. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and have not loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. Paul's response isn't one of fear. It is one of pointing the finger and saying, told you so. <laughs> right? You should have listened to me. Uh, we, were, we were going to Guatemala. I remember there was one point in the airport where Tara mentioned something about, hey, you should probably not put your passport in your pocket. And I always put it in my brief co- briefcase, my, my laptop case. Um, but I, I think it was just like really quickly we're going through and we're going to need it again in a second, so I just put it in my pocket. So she had mentioned that. And thought, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, lo and behold, um, I go to check out where my passport is on Friday. And it's been four days since we took the bus to El Moro. Couldn't find my passport. Do you know what I had done? I put it in my pocket, <laughs> like Tara told me not to do, and it had fallen out. It's a normal thing that would happen, right? And I, I remember when I told Tara, she had this thought, is there any chance it was in your pocket? <laughs> oh, no, I wouldn't have done that. I would have put it in my briefcase like I always do. And I was wrong, and she was right, and there was that I told you so moment. Well, this is what happens here, right? This is, Paul looks at them and says, listen, you should have listened to me. I told you that this was going to happen. I told you we're going to suffer harm and loss if we took this journey. But God is not just giving Paul like a victory, like, hey, Paul, now you can gloat. You're the king. You're the winner. You know what you're doing. Everybody else is dumb. It's not about Paul's pride. God is using this situation where people follow their own wisdom, they get into a situation where there is no earthly hope left, and then the man of God can stand up and say, listen, I want to let you know that I told you so in the first place. In other words, you should have listened to me before. And so God is using it to build Paul's credibility with them so that when he tells them what he's about to tell them, they're ready to listen. Okay, they should, be ready, should have been ready to listen in the first place. Now they're really ready. And God used all of this to get them to this point. Verse 22. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer. That is completely against everything that they thought they should do at this point. What do you do when you're hopeless in despair thinking you're going to die any minute? You don't be of good cheer. Right? That's the last thing that you do. And that's what Paul tells them that they ought to do. It says, be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. And I gotta say, I love how Paul prefaces that statement. How he says, the angel of God stood by me, and just so you know, I belong to that God, and I serve that God. Okay, so I know who I'm talking about. The angel of the real God of heaven appeared to me. What did he say? He said, saying, fear not, Paul, 
thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Whereof, sirs, be of good cheer. Why can you be of good cheer, even though every earthly circumstance looks terrible? Because God said you can. Because God said that though it doesn't seem possible, you'll be saved. Paul here has wonderful news for them, and he says, listen, folks, I believe God. Why is it different for me than everybody else here? Because I'm practicing my faith in God, and God showed me something, and I believe it to be true, and I want you to do the same. Cheer up, men. God is always faithful to his promises. So what I want to do tonight is I want to give you three truths that I think arise from this text, and then two applications for us. Okay? So three, I think, very essential truths for us to go through this life properly. The first one is this. God was sovereign over the storm. Okay? In this circumstance, in all storms, God is sovereign over the storm. And listen, I know that this t- territory is sometimes dangerous for people. There's this huge argument between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and all I can say is God's word shows both. But we very clearly see here that God was sovereign over this storm. And I don't just mean that, was, that God was like, okay, now that there's a storm, I can step in and alter it a little bit or change it or, or even stop it. Yeah, I, think, I think we sometimes think about God being in control of the weather and it's like, okay, yeah, I remember the story where Jesus, they were on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus rebuked the wind and the wind and the waves, they just stopped. And so, yes, while the storm is going on, Jesus, if he wants to, can stop the storm. That's not what I mean. I mean God brought the storm. The storm was there because God wanted it to be there. Consider these verses. Isaiah 45.5 says, I'm the Lord and there's none else. This is verse 5. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, thou hast not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light. I create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, unless you believe that God is the author of sin, you know that when it says, I create evil, he's not saying, I make people do evil things. The evil there is just trouble. I make peace and I make trouble hard circumstances, storms. That is, that is God. He's in control of those things. God is constantly controlling the weather in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 6, he destroys it by a flood. In Exodus chapter 9, he sends hail and fire from heaven. Joshua 10, there's hail on the Amorites. 1 Samuel 7, there's thunder on the Philistines. Deuteronomy 11, there's rain as a reward for obedience. Deuteronomy 28, drought. Uh, 1 Samuel 12, thunder and rain to get the people's attention. 2 Samuel 21, drought and famine. Amos 4, rain given and withheld. And that Amos 4, 7 is just an amazing text. It's like, uh, I'm going to send rain on this city, but the one right beside it is not going to get rain. For such a long period that one city has no famine, They're, they have a, a plentiful harvest, and the other city has a famine, a drought. Like that's, This is how God is in control of the weather. We see it over and over again in Scripture. Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. God does what he wants to do. And God was sovereign 
over this storm. It pleased God to send the storm. He did it. It did not surprise God. It was something that God planned all the way along. Now, it surprised Paul, right? I mean, at least it would have. Now, now Paul was not sitting back going, oh no, God's not in control. Oh no, I don't know what to do. God didn't have this planned. Okay? But Paul was not warned beforehand that it was going to happen. God never appeared to him. And do you realize that here, it is after they lose all hope that Paul is given the vision that says, hey Paul, listen, don't be, tell the men not to be afraid because I'm going to save your life and everybody else's on the ship. But the ship's going to be destroyed. It's not until after everybody else has lost all hope. And so what I'm saying is, Paul didn't know all the way along, but God was in control and God was working through it. Number two, point number two, God was working through the storm. Not only did God bring the storm, not only sovereign over it, but he was working through it. He wasn't sending the storm because he just wanted to see how exciting it would be when it happened. It wasn't like, hey, I'm bored watching this ship travel nicely. The south wind is just its not as exciting as I'd want it to be. No, God had a very real purpose in that storm. God was divinely working to bring about his plan. Um, think about God's previous promise. In Acts chapter 23, 11, he says, The night following, the Lord stood by him, speaking about Paul, he said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. So we know that Paul is going to get to Rome. That is what God has promised Paul. And the question is, what's this storm all about? How does it fit in? And the answer is, because God's plan to send Paul to Rome wasn't just to get him to a destination someday. It was the entire process God had planned out because he had a very real plan throughout the process. It wasn't just a random like, oh, Paul, I foresee that maybe you'll end up in Rome someday. God, I, God is saying, I have a way that I'm planning to get you. Now, Paul wasn't aware of this. He didn't know all of the way that was going to happen. He just knew he would get to Rome. God was working through the storm. And really, I think this is a, a brilliant plan, if you think about it. It's not a plan that any of us would ever concoct. But he brought these men to a place where, first of all, he introduced them to a man named Paul, who was a prisoner, who they thought was nothing. Okay? In their eyes, he was serving a God who couldn't keep, them at, keep him out of prison. He was serving an unimpressive God, as far as they were concerned, when Paul steps on the ship. And Paul gives them the advice and says, you know, you shouldn't travel this way. You shouldn't go, then it's going to be dangerous. Well, they decide to go against Paul's advice, and so God brings these people to a place where they recognize Paul as, hey, listen, he was right. Maybe we should have listened to him the first time. And not only that, he brings them to a place where they are completely helpless and hopeless by themselves. Right? They have no anchor to hold on to. Some of these people, they were brilliant seamen. They had spent hours and, and days and months on the sea, and all of them despaired for their lives because they realized that their talents and abilities when it came to, to controlling the ship were out the window. There was nothing they could hold on to. All hope was lost. God brought them to this place so that Paul could then stand up in front of them all and say, listen, the God that you thought was weak, that you thought was unimpressive when you first met me, is the God who is going to save us in this storm. He's promised me all of you will be saved. The ship will get destroyed. You will all be saved. And, and, and listen, we're only halfway through the story. 
as we see the story progress more and more and more, we'll see more opportunities where Paul gets to present the greatness of his God and the salvation that comes only through God. And by the end of this, many of these prisoners and many of the centurions, the, the Roman soldiers, many of these people on the ship presumably get saved. They, they trust Christ. Why? Because God had a plan all the way along that though it meant a lot of difficulty for them, it meant their good in the end. It meant that he would be glorified. It meant that they would see God's salvation in a way that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. They wouldn't have listened to Paul if it wasn't for the storm. And so God was working through the storm. One final thought before we move on to the next point. You realize that God was working through their poor decisions? You realize that it was, they were the ones that decided that they would get on the ship there? That it was their bad call that led to this? And yet God all along knew that. And what I'm saying is it doesn't matter where you're at and what decisions have led you to where you are, where you are now, God can work through your circumstance and your situation to bring you where you're supposed to be. Number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God is working through the storm. And number three, mankind is on a need-to-know basis. We're on a very much a need-to-know basis. God only tells us what he wants us, what, he, what we need to know. Uh, I've been amazed over the past week or so, just looking at Scripture and seeing how the Holy Spirit's been leading the different people teaching in this church. Um, we just happened to be coming to First Peter on Wednesday night, and as you probably know, First Peter is all about Christian suffering. And so there's a lesson on what it means to suffer like a Christian and Peter telling them. And remember, Peter doesn't give them all the answers as to why they're suffering. He tells them how they're supposed to act amidst their suffering. And then last night at College and Career Activity, uh, Justin Egan gave his, actually his first lesson. He did a great job and he was speaking about there's a situation in Luke chapter 13 where there are people that come to Jesus and they ask him why this suffering is happening and his response is, this is what you need to do. And it's just a strange response. He doesn't say this is why it happened. He says, it doesn't matter. It, it happened. This is what's relevant for you in this. In other words, he's not trying to ask, answer all of the questions why or how or when. He is concerned with telling us what we need to know. And then pastor's sermon this morning about David. David is told he's going to be king. Now at that point, he might expect that that's just going to mean he's going to defeat Goliath and then he's going to maybe be in charge of an army for a while and, and, and win some other victories, which does happen. When he's like trying to be killed over and over and over again, and he's hiding for years and years and years, and he's even getting to the point where he goes to the Philistines, you kind of might wonder if you're David, God, what are you talking about? God didn't tell him all those things. He didn't say, David, you're going to be king. Prepare for A, B, C, D, and E, and F because all these things are going to happen in your life. God said, this is what you need to know. And that's it. And that's the same thing he does for us. The word is not designed to answer every question you have. It, it's really not. You're going to have so many questions when you come to the Bible and you're going to leave and you're going to go, I still don't know. I don't get this circumstance. I don't get this storm. God, I don't know what you're doing in my life right now. You'd be frustrated. You can quit. You can say, listen, I don't understand, but I trust. Don't understand, but I know you've given me everything I need. And that was true here. Even Paul didn't know. I mean, if anybody should have known, it was Paul, right? God was going to tell somebody, and he didn't. Not until long after the, the storm had hit, and they were at the point of despair. So mankind is on a need-to-know basis. 
Why am I sick? Why did I lose my job? Why did I lose my friend or my family member? Why me? Why now? When are you going to act? God, what are you doing? We all face those questions. And God says, follow me. Those are the three things you must know. Here are the two points of application. We'll go through these quickly. These three truths, they're vitally important. Listen, I wish you'd really get them. God is sovereign. He's in control. He's doing something in your storm. You only know what you need to know. Those, are, those things are essential for our lives. But when you leave here, what do you say? Okay, this is what I do then. What do I do about that? Well, I've got two things for you. Uh, um, the first thing is this. Number one, we should praise God. We should praise God because he's sovereign over the storm, because he's a big God, because he's powerful, because he's in control, because he's, worth, he's worthy of our praise. He is awesome. And nothing happens outside of his vision. He is working all the time. And so we can praise God for what he's doing in our lives, even when what he's doing in our lives doesn't seem to be a good thing for us at the time. We can praise him because he is not weak. We can praise him because he even uses our bad choices for his glory. That's a God worth praising. You consider the cross for a moment. Consider how it was Judas and the high priests and the Roman soldiers and Pilate and, and then even the disciples leaving. I mean, it was, it was sinful choice after sinful choice after sinful choice that led to the point where mankind was crucifying their creator and their savior. Worst possible scenario that could be imagined. All because of man's bad choices, man's sin. And consider the fact that in all of those bad choices, it led to Jesus dying on the cross for those sinners. God working through bad choices. Do you realize that the person who nailed Jesus' hands could have been saved by Jesus' death if they trusted him in faith? That Pilate? Do you realize Herod? I mean, any of these people, they could have come to Christ. The high priests? The, the, the Sanhedrin that condemned him? I mean, he was dying for their sin. Their sin was killing him. God, he's an amazing God. He's worth praising. He works even in our bad choices, even our sinful decisions. He's an, a great God. There's a song written by Casting Crowns. It's called Praise You in the Storm. And it's a great song. It says, in the first verse, I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day. God, this is how I thought you'd work. But once again, I say amen, and it's still raining. As the thunder rolls, I barely hear your whisper through the rain, I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. I praise you in this storm. I will lift my hands, for you are who you are, no matter where I am. Every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. Even in our storms, our response ought to be praise to our God. Because no matter where we're at, he is who he is. He's sovereign, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's He's still our Savior. So we can praise him. Number two, we ought to live by faith. 
Let's leave here today decided that we will live by faith. Paul said over and over again, in fact, two, possibly three times in the New Testament, the just shall live by faith. It was said first in the book of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. We've been talking about it for the last four months with our youth group. What it, what do we live, how do we live this life? We live by faith. And that might sound like out there, like just some kind of concept, but you think about that. What does that mean? You go through a circumstance, how do you react to that? You live by faith. You make a decision in your life. Even small, seemingly insignificant decisions, you do it by faith. What does God want me to do? What, is, what would he say is right? Okay. Every decision we make, we make by faith. We live by faith. And so, what does Paul do here? Throughout the whole thing, he responds by faith. Now, why does this come from the story? Well, this is the thing. Paul is put in the situation when 275 guys respond hopelessly. One man lives by faith. And then he becomes a light to all of those other guys. He is the one person that everybody can look to. Now, whether you're in a storm and living by faith, you're a light. You're somebody that people are looking to. And even when you're not in a storm, live by faith. You know, sometimes for us, it seems like we, we, okay, Lord, I'm in this hardship. Now I'll trust you. But when everything's going well, it's like I kind of trust myself a little bit. I'm in control. I know what's going on. No, live by faith all the time. The just shall live by faith. And in this story, we see a wonderful example of what God does with his servants and how he uses them when they respond in faith. In this story, did Paul do anything really great? No. He didn't really, right? I mean, what did he do that was special? The only thing he did was that he lived by faith. He didn't look around. Or when he did, when he looked around, he knew who was in control. In our story, we find ourselves in the midst of a terrible storm. This is the text in front of us. A storm that caused grown men to despair of all hope. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know whether you're in a storm or, or you've just come out of a storm or you're going in or, or maybe everything is just calm and peaceful and wonderful in your life right now. The truth is, I don't think it matters. I think wherever we're at, we need to learn to praise him and to live by faith. Our God is big. Our God is awesome. And he alone should be trusted. Let's pray.